Heavenly Father, we do exalt Thee. And Lord, keep us mindful that though the blood of Christ gives us access to You, Lord, that You are still the Most High God to be exalted, to be worshipped. And Lord, You are the friend of sinners. And You are a friend to Abraham. Always let us treat You, Lord, with the proper worship and respect. And, Lord, may that be in the worship that we show in our everyday life. Just as the priests of the Israelites, the Levites, had to maintain themselves in a manner apart from the people. Lord, I just pray that our lives would be holy. Our lives would be demonstrative of the blood that was shed for us, Lord. And we just pray, Lord, that as we do so, that we not only focus on trying to live right, but also focus on the great commission that you've given us, Lord. Not just to look right on the outside, to be right on the inside, and to have a heart like Christ for the lost and the hurting. Lord, this time is for you. We just pray for Michael as he gives us uh, the message. Lord, we pray for every heart here, Lord, that uh, you would use this time to transform us and to make us more in the image of that great high priest, that we may be, as Peter spoke in his epistle, part of that royal priesthood, that we may live in that manner. Lord, I pray for all the time today and for the uh, um, gathering later for, uh, for Chad. And I just pray for uh, even the young ones, Lord, today as we as we go. So... Lord, to you be the glory, to you be the exaltation. And in the name of our high priest, Jesus, I pray. Amen. If you would open with me to Psalm 15 this morning. Psalm 15, that's where we're going to be this morning. This is uh, our third in a series of journeying through the Psalms, uh, the late half of our summer together. We're going to look at 11 or 12 different Psalms. Uh, July and August. When I was in uh, elementary school, some friends and I formed a secret club, and we called ourselves the Freebirds. I I don't know where that name came from. There was a a wrestling group, a duo called the Freebirds, but I I think that might have been after when we were in elementary school, so I don't know where that came from. Uh, We had a secret handshake, even. Um... But my guess is, is if you had come up and wanted to join our secret club, we probably would have made you learn the handshake. I don't know that we had very high, um, I don't know if the bar was set very high. I can't remember. It's been a long time. But ever since that time, I found myself in various ages and stages of life um, trying to figure out what it would take to belong to different groups. All through school, there were And the groups always had secret passwords, if not a secret handshake. Uh, Those passwords might have been the clothes that you wore, might have been uh, your interests, your hobbies, might have been the way that you talked. Uh, At our high school, it was which parking lot you parked in. There were two parking lots at my high school. There was the kicker lot. I am from Texas. And then there was what we called the back lot, But if you parked on the kicker lot, that was called the snob lot. 
And so you belong to a group based on where you pulled up your car. I also found out that sometimes um, you never knew why you, you didn't fit in. Before I got my license, uh, I went to high school that had an open campus. We got to leave campus every day to go for lunch. We could go home, go to a local restaurant in town. Um, and before I got my license, for almost a year, I rode with a guy named Brian. And then one day, walked up to his truck to get in, and he said, my mom and dad said, you can't go to me, me anymore to lunch. Never did find out why. Kind of strange, but I found someone else to ride with and eventually drove myself. But that happens in life. We, we long to be a part of a group, and sometimes we figure out what it takes to get in, and we are like that, and sometimes we're not. As we get older, those membership requirements sometimes become more formal. We go off to college. Uh, they expect things like an application, an essay, a transcript. They also want money. And in, and in college, sometimes, sometimes before, we, we want to belong to a group called Gainfully Employed. Uh, sometimes that takes perseverance to belong to that group, and sometimes it takes knowing the right person. I've been involved in, in, in jobs where it took perseverance, and sometimes it was just I knew the right person at the right time, and a job fell into my lap. Uh, all through life, we look to belong to certain groups. And David asks a similar question this morning. He says, Who may abide in your tent, O Lord, and who may dwell in your holy hill? But the question he asks is far more important than a secret club called the Freebirds, uh, the right group in high school, even where you go to college or what job you get, uh, those secret clubs eventually disband. Uh, you will eventually retire or get fired or laid off from a job. Uh, and as you get older, the college that you went to seems to matter less and less. After all, I married an Aggie later afterwards after attending the University of Texas. Um, I would never have dreamed of doing that when I was in school. <laughs> But David's question, that question is far more important than any of the others. What does it take to be involved in, to be in God's presence? See, answering that question correctly impacts eternity. Not just who I spend a few months or days or weeks or even years with. So follow along with me as I read and let's see what David says it does take. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He who does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Would you pray with me, please? Father, as we look at your word this morning, God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, uh, that you would keep us from distraction, that we would hear, seek to obey, and, and be changed because of who you are uh, and because of your good word. And we ask these things in Christ's name. 
Amen. Before we get too far, I want to I just drop a couple of things in the back of your mind that I want you to, to let just percolate or stew back there while we talk about this. Number one, this is the Old Testament. Um, and I want you to notice what's not in those verses. See, he asks, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Both of those terms throughout the Psalms refer to the tabernacle that David had erected in Jerusalem where the ark was. But notice what's missing. There's nothing here about ritual. There's nothing here about offerings. There's nothing here about purity regulations. There's nothing here about clean and unclean. There's no priests. There's no sacrifices. There's no ritual. I just want you to think about that, just in the context of who David is, where he lived, what was going on, how people worshipped God. Notice that is completely absent. Second thing you need to keep in the back of your mind as we talk about this today, he never mentions faith either. Both of those ideas are prevalent and prominent in the Old Testament. The idea of faith and the idea of ritual and sacrifice are throughout the Old Testament, but they're absent here. And there's a reason they're absent here, and we'll get to that as we go through. So just that needs to stay in the back of your mind. Let it sit. If it makes you nervous, that's okay. If it frustrates you, that's okay. If you, want, if you have a beard, you want to pull on it and go, hmm, you can do that. But it needs to stay back there. So what does David say? Well, he, he basically gives us kind of four big general categories of what it takes to be a part of that group that gets to be in God's presence. And the first thing is in verse 2. It's someone you need to live a whole life. The NASB says, he who walks with integrity. Um, What he does, this is poetry, um, and in verses 2 and verse 3, he gives us uh, three things that we need to do. And they are walking, doing, and speaking. Walking, doing, and speaking. It says you need to walk with integrity. That word integrity um, means wholeness or completeness or consistency. What happens in the house is the same as what happens outside the house. What happens at work is the same thing that happens at home. What happens in church is what happens on the street. I'm consistent. I'm whole. You can't look at part of my life and go, well, you act one way here, but you act another way there. And maybe David's thinking of the first response. Well, I'm consistent, all right. I'm consistently bad. And so he goes on and says, well, you have to work righteousness. That word righteousness in the Old Testament refers to um, God's moral expectations, His standards of behavior. So it's not just that you're consistent. You're consistently righteous. You're consistently good. You consistently do those things that God requires. And it's not just that our actions are like that. The third line in verse 2 is, he speaks truth in his heart. Interesting phrase, it's not from his heart, it's he speaks truth in his heart. In other words, what's in my heart is the same thing that comes out of my mouth. The truth that's there is what I speak. And so there's there's an expectation that this is right that this is correct, that this is lined up with what God believes. 
we do right actions, we speak right words, our life is whole. We have integrity. Someone looks at our life and goes, that person does what God asks him to do. And David said, that's the one that's in God's presence. Well, that's still fairly general. It's fairly vague. I mean, well, we can get an idea of that, but in verse 3, he gives us some specifics and he uses the same three terms, walking, doing, and speaking. We don't see that in the English because he uses a figure of speech. He says in verse 3, "...who does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend." Um, that phrase, does not slander, that verb actually comes from the root uh, noun, which is foot. Uh, another way of saying that is, he does not walk over with his tongue. It's a figure of speech in the Hebrew that means he doesn't slander someone. Uh, he doesn't go around talking about his neighbor. He doesn't go around saying bad things about people, whether they deserve it or not. Second, he does not do evil to his neighbor. Uh, that word evil is an interesting word. It's the Hebrew word ra'ah, and it's got a wide range of meaning, all the way from something that causes discomfort. Uh, you, could be a, you could be affected by evil, by ra'ah, if you were out in the sun and it was too hot and you were sweating. I've got discomfort because of my environment. Or it could mean great calamity and evil caused by someone or something. Just a wide range of, of meaning in the Old Testament. And I think David is saying, yeah, all of that. Do you cause your neighbor discomfort in any way? Do you bring great evil on your neighbor? Anything in between. Do your actions affect your neighbor in a negative way? And David says they shouldn't. In fact, if you want to be in God's presence, they can't. Do you treat your neighbor well? Third, nor takes up a reproach against his neighbor. Um, that word reproach is, in a sense, you're pointing out their faults. It's like you're, you're raising a sign up over, you know when you're kids and you put a sign on someone's back that says, kick me, right? It's like you've done that. You've, you've written out, um, my neighbor lost his temper with his kids today and you slapped it on his back. Right, for me to look at and point and laugh. See, you wouldn't think of sneaking over to your neighbor's house at night, crawling up on its roof, his roof and erecting a big sign that says, uh, my neighbor stole money from work today. You wouldn't do that. But how often do we, through just the words that we use, hold up a sign against people that, that we know that points out their faults? points out their shortcomings. Now, we're not talking about, as brothers and sisters in Christ, um, you know, if I know one of my good dear brothers is in sin, I need to go to him and point that out. I don't need to tell the whole world. And that's the difference in, in what he's talking about. This is not that we don't take care of one another. This is not that we aren't our brother's keeper. We are. We are to encourage one another and challenge one another. We're not to go spreading that around to the whole world. We're not to raise up, really lift up a sign of reproach against someone. We're not to broadcast what they've done wrong to the whole world. 
how we walk, how we act, how we speak, all of those things are extremely important on whether or not, David says, we get to come into God's presence. The third thing, verse 4, um, I call it fearing God and not man, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised or you could say rejected, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He does not, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. Um, God says we're to honor those people who fear him. See, our culture has it backwards. Uh, we honor people who entertain us. Uh, we honor people who excel in certain athletic events. Uh, we honor people who can get themselves elected. Often, irregardless of what their moral behavior is like. And David says we despise or reject, that word can mean both and often does, those who are reprobate, those who are despicable. In a sense, those who, the opposite of those who fear the Lord. Those those who don't fear God. David says we despise those people. We, uh, we reject them and their influence on us. See, our culture doesn't like to do that. Our culture loves to be influenced by people who can entertain us. Whether or not that entertainment is edifying or uplifting or brings God honor. The last little phrase in that verse, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. It's a little awkward. Um, Swearing in the Old Testament, this word, swearing is not cursing, it's taking an oath. It's making a promise um, that I'm going to fulfill something in the future regardless. So when he says he swears to his own hurt, it's that same word that was up there a minute ago, ra'ah, evil. He makes a promise. He makes a binding oath on himself regardless of the consequences to me later on. And he does not change. So I've made an oath and then I realize ooh, this is a little uncomfortable, or this is downright bad. I found myself in trouble because of the promise that I made. And David says, well, you don't break your promise. Just because it turned out uncomfortable for you doesn't mean you turn back on what you promised God you were going to do. Do you fear God more, or do you fear man more? Do you fear God more, or do you fear the consequences? Do you fear God more, or do you... Bow down to your own comfort. Bow down to your own delight and entertainment. You know, it's interesting as we think about how we relate to the culture. Jesus never condoned sinful behavior. But he also didn't become a separatist. We read those words and we think, well, if I'm supposed to despise the despicable one, reject him, I can get my holy huddle over here and, and we'll reject him, we'll despise him and we'll just kind of hang out together. Jesus never did that. He hung out with sinners. But he didn't condone their behavior. What he did was he introduced to them the kingdom of God and his message was repent. His message was, you know, it's okay, you can do what you're doing. No, he rejected their behavior. He rejected their influence on him but he introduced to them the kingdom of God. Paul did the same thing when he was in Athens. 
Um, a town full of idolatrous people. The text even says his spirit was provoked within him. He wasn't happy. But he didn't run off on his own and say, I'm not going to mess with those people. No, he interacted with them, but he called them to repent. He called them to turn away from those things they were involved in. I've got a better deal for you, he said. It's the kingdom of God. I'm not shying away from these people, but I'm number one, I'm not going to accept their worldview and I'm not going to let it influence me. My goal is to influence them. We will not change the world. We will not impact our society by forming a nice little closed holy huddle and saying, oh God, I hope something changes. Finally, verse 5, he doesn't take advantage of the needy. He doesn't put his money out at interest. He doesn't take a bribe against the innocent. He doesn't use wealth or power to take advantage of those people who don't have that. The person who needs a loan is someone, especially in that culture, who was destitute. And charging interest was just going to further put them in destitution. He's not talking about commercial interest. He's not talking about banks and loans. He's talking about individuals and individuals. It was against the law, according to Moses, to charge your neighbor interest. If they needed to borrow money, you gave it to them. But you didn't do it at interest. And then one of the worst things you could do would be to accept money and then pervert justice. This goes against God's character. Ultimately, one early commentator, uh, Chrysostom, who lived in the 4th century, says it goes against the incarnation itself as the one who was rich became poor for us. Not the one who was rich used his wealth to take advantage of us. So there you go. That's it. Those are the things that you have to do to be in God's presence. And we read that, and I get personally get a little nervous when I read that, as I read that this week, because, well, but God, I, I, I don't always do all those things. Is this, and David doesn't mention, is it, is it, is it pass fail? Is it a 70? You know, is it, is it 95%? Those aren't in here. What's interesting is for a long time, for many centuries, and I don't know how the Psalms, and we don't know how the Psalms were put together, it appears at times that some of them were organized into, into groups. These Psalms kind of go together. And for a long time, for, for many centuries, uh, people have commented on the fact that we don't think there were one psalm originally, but, but that 14 and 15 go together. In a sense, they're two sides of the same coin. And that coin is the state of mankind. Side one, heads. God has this very high standard that He requires to be in His presence. That's Psalm 15. Side two, tails, the, the bad news, I guess is no one can do it. So we read this morning at the very beginning. Not only can no one do it, nobody really wants to. God looks down and nobody's really interested. Nobody cares. 
And then he leaves us like that. Well, but David, what's the result? It'd be like opening up Romans and starting to read Romans and stopping at chapter 3, verse 20. You get all the bad news and you go, well, I'm sunk. No chance. And David just stops. It happens a fair amount in Scripture where the writer just stops because he stops because he wants us to begin to think at that point in time. What am I going to do? What is the solution? I mean, I, I see this, and right here next to each other, I can't do it, but I have to do it. I can't, but I have to. I can't, but I have to. The result is, or the, the our response should be, God, help. And what we read as we go through several more psalms in this, what I think is a section of psalms that are all from David, is that cry, Psalm 16, 1 and 2, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good besides you. A response to that inadequacy. Psalm 25, 4 through 7. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. Teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Psalm 32, 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And as Mark so adequately did for us as we started, right? we know the answer. We have the answer. Right? We have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Because of the blood that was spilled on the cross, you and I have the ability, have the, have the access into that tabernacle. Even though we utterly and completely fail at living up to Psalm 15. Now the danger is, is that we look at that grace and then we ignore Psalm 15. That's the great danger of, of Christianity. Is I guess there are two great dangers. Number one is we ignore grace and think we can do it on our own. And, and if you don't do it, I put my thumb down and I make you try even harder. But the other great danger is, is that I'm so thankful for grace, but you know what? It doesn't matter anymore. I can do whatever I want to. God's forgiven me. Thank you, Jesus. And we treat our neighbor like trash. You see, God hasn't changed. He still expects us to be His image bearers on this planet. I want to give you three practical, current ways that you can do that based on three current events that took place this weekend. One in London, one in Norway, and one in New York. Amy Winehouse, I don't know if you know her or not. Some of you may not know who that is. Amy Winehouse uh, was found dead in her apartment yesterday in, in London. She was a singer, very popular, won several... Whatever award you win when you're a singer, is that a Grammy or is that a, I don't know, um, beautiful voice, uh, very uh, deep and meaningful lyrics, uh, very talented young lady 
who was also uh, bipolar and addicted to numerous drugs and alcohol. Uh, the news didn't say why she died, probably drug-related, but we don't know. Uh, I saw various responses to her death yesterday, just reading, looking, places like Facebook, places like news things and people commenting. Um, some by Christians who were less than kind, uh, in a sense raised a reproach over her, serves her right. Well, number one, as far as I know, she wasn't a believer. And so, would we expect her, I mean, God would, but would we expect her to even understand what her role is? As we talked about several weeks ago, when the unrighteous perish, our number one response should be an, an inward look of, What's my, look, what's my life look like as God looks down on the sons of men? What's he, what's he looking at in my heart? I think that's the, our first response. Um, our second response is, do I know anybody else like that that God needs me to reach? Uh, I don't, you know, we, we, we don't know if she had any believers in her life at all. Would that have made a difference in, in who she was and how she lived? Don't know. Best that I can understand is she knew she was bipolar and she refused to take medication could someone have changed their mind? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Just one response as we, as we react to the death of the wicked. What is our response as believers? Number two, you're probably aware of the, the, uh, the massacre that happened in Norway yesterday. Uh, and from who is labeled by the news media a Christian right-wing fundamentalist. And again the comments. Uh, lots of issues that we don't have time to go into, but here's a picture for the world to see of what Christians do in this guy who massacred almost 100 people. Are we presenting a different side to what Christianity is, or are we just another one like that? Maybe not with a gun in our hands, but maybe with a gun in our mouth. Maybe as we speak, maybe as we act, uh, we may not spill blood, but we certainly might wound and scar and kill emotionally. Are we presenting an image of God for the world to see and go, you know what, they call that guy a Christian, but he couldn't have been because I know real Christians. And that would never happen. They're not like that. Do we present another side of the coin as believers, as a body of Christ? I think it's important that we do. We may not be able to stop the world from grabbing onto that line that he claimed to be a Christian in various writings. We can't do anything about that. We can do things about how we behave and how people at least give them another option of what Christianity looks like. Finally, uh, this morning in New York at midnight, uh, they begin doing uh, marriages for homosexual couples. One of, it's not a very strong argument, but one of the arguments that, that they give for uh, how dare Christians say that we don't have this right is, uh, look at your own marriages. They're falling apart. 
Well, I think there's good arguments why that's a, a red herring, why that's getting off the, the topic. But those of us who wear one of these took a vow for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, sickness and in health. I promise, I vow before God, right, I swear, future obligations, I'm going to keep them. Even if I'm hurt in the process. Even if, you know, I wake up, you know, when, when you get married, You've got the perfect marriage, right, when, it, when that first starts out, right? Before long, people are going to be calling you asking for advice because, well, most of us, asking for advice on, on you know, what do I do? Because you're in love and things are wonderful. And shortly after that, um, she'll do something to you or you'll do something to her that causes ra'ah either mild discomfort or great evil. And God says, if you make a vow, my expectation is, is that you keep it. Even if things didn't go the way that you thought they were going to go. And for all of you young folks out there who are yet to be married, uh, marriage is a wonderful thing, but you need to go in with your eyes open that your spouse is going to hurt you. Your spouse is going to disappoint you. Your spouse is not going to turn out the way that you thought they were. Whether that's in a small way or a large way, and you've got to decide, am I going to make a vow to my own hurt and not change? You see, if believers took that seriously, if we feared God more than we enjoyed our comfort and our I just want selfishness. Then there's lots of other reasons that, that the homosexual community would point and say, this is okay, but they certainly couldn't look at our lives and say, you're one to talk. Are we willing to walk in integrity that the world may see God through us as we relate to our neighbors? as we relate to our, our family, our co-workers, will they see God in us? This high standard that David gives is Scripture. It's here for a reason. Because God desires us for, for us to walk in integrity. And I'm so thankful that in my inability, He sent His Son for me that I might be able to, as Mark read about and as we sang about, come into His presence and seek forgiveness and start the next minute over, start the next day over. When I fail, when something comes out of my mouth that shouldn't come out of my mouth, I can come into God's presence anyway, even though I don't fit the bill because Christ did fit the bill. Christ did fulfill these things. He says at the end of Luke that all things in the scriptures, the writings, the prophets, and the Psalms speak of me. You want to know the one that can come into his presence? The one who does these things, the one who did these things? That was Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. 
And because of what he did, we can also come into his presence. That's why David says at the end of Psalm 16, in your presence, talking to God, is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Christ is at God's right hand. That's where the fullness of joy comes from. That's where we get pleasure forever. We can't do what this book says. But those requirements haven't gone away. And we shouldn't ever take advantage of grace and think, ah, God's got that covered. I don't have to do that. No, we, we need to act like believers. Act like people who are in His presence are supposed to act. By the way we walk, by the way we act, and by the way we speak. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you that you are holy and just and righteous and that you don't change. Thank you that you can be depended upon. But God, we also are in debt to you because you don't change. Because you haven't lowered the bar just because we can't reach it. And so we are eternally grateful for your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are thankful for how He has loved us and sacrificed Himself for us. And so, God, we ask that You would take um, these words, that Your Spirit would impress them upon us, that we might leave this place changed, that You might be glorified, that we might bear Your image to this world, that those who don't know You would see You clearly in us as individuals and as a body. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.